in your holy and righteous name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you guys. Well, good morning again. Uh, glad to see all of you guys. Good to see all of you. Uh, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we're in a series. Uh, we're calling Here to There. And uh, kind of going through the last weeks, uh, the last week of the life of Christ uh, over the last few weeks. And this is our fifth week in this series. And uh, so I just want to welcome you into that if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks. But uh, some of you uh, in this room this morning, you know exactly what it is like or what it feels like uh, to have someone that you care for, right? Someone that you love to be unfaithful to you. Uh, some of you have had a a person be unfaithful to you, maybe in a dating relationship or, or even in a marriage. Uh, others of you in this room, you've had the pain of having a close friend or a family member that maybe let you down or maybe they betrayed you. Or some of you know the pain of being abandoned or even abused by a parent. To this day, their betrayal and their unfaithfulness to you uh, still has a very deep impact in your life. And uh, here's what I want you to know, and I want you to grab this this morning as we get into the message this morning is that God knows exactly how you feel, right? God knows firsthand what it's like to have people that he loves, people that he has trusted uh, who betray him or, or who failed him. He knows what it's like to have people abandon him. He knows what it's like to have people let him down. I mean, he understands exactly what some of you have faced in the past, he knows exactly what some of you are facing right now, and, and he knows exactly what you may be facing in the future. He knows how that's going to feel. I want you to know that God understands firsthand very well unfaithfulness. Now it's Thursday. It's the final full day of Jesus' life here on earth. And God gives us a clear picture of how a group of those who, who loved and intimately walked with Jesus, how they betrayed him, how they let him down, and how they were unfaithful in their relationship to him. However, when we look at Thursday, Thursday also represents something good. It represents something wonderful. It represents something that should bring all of us hope. Thursday represents how God remains faithful to us, even when we are unfaithful to him. I want you to get your Bibles out this morning. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26, if you've got your Bibles. If you don't have them, We'll have the scripture on the screen for you this morning, or as always, you can get it through the Source Church app. But Matthew chapter 26, the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is telling his disciples that he is going to be crucified. And in the middle of this chapter, we find that he and his disciples, they're in the upper room of a, of a home somewhere in Jerusalem, and what they're doing is they're eating a meal together. It's the last time that Jesus will have with these 12 that have been walking alongside of him for over three years now. Jesus is entering into the very last hours of his life. He's about to fulfill his ultimate purpose for, for coming to earth, which was to die for the, the sins of mankind. And Jesus, in this story here, he's with his closest friends, his disciples. And this Thursday evening unfolds into Friday morning. The commitment and pledge of the, the faithfulness of these men begin to unravel right in front of Jesus' eyes. How were Jesus' disciples unfaithful to him? We see very early in this story that, first off, Judas betrays Jesus. In verse 14, pick it up here, Matthew 26, here's what it says. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him, meaning Jesus, over to you? 
And they sent out, or they set out for him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time on, Judas looked for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, I find these three verses some of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. Because Judas, what, is he, what he does is he goes to the guys that, that want Jesus dead the most. And he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, during this time period, 30 pieces of silver was the same amount that, that you would pay for a common slave. And what makes this whole situation so sad to me is that Judas walked personally with Jesus for over three years. I mean, not only did he hear Jesus teach, right? Not only did he witness Jesus performing miracles, but he also ate with Jesus. He laughed with Jesus. He probably even cried with Jesus. I mean, this is a guy who shared life very intimately with Jesus and then in the end sells Jesus out for just a few pieces of silver. You look at this and you go, I mean, how could... How could something like that happen? Well, I think Judas represents many of the people that lived in Jerusalem during that time. If you remember back in week one, we talked about the fact that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, right, for the, uh, what we know is, is Palm Sunday, he came into Jerusalem and the people, they were looking for someone to free them from Roman rule, to free them from Roman oppression. They wanted a military hero. Remember, they, they didn't want a savior. And it was all about expectations. And when the people of Jerusalem realized that Jesus had not come to free them from Roman rule, but to free them from their own sins, what did we see them do? They, they turned on him, right? They wanted him crucified. They were willing to trade Jesus for a, a criminal by the name of Barabbas. And see, their unmet expectations led to their unfaithfulness, and it's the same with Judas. See, when Judas realized that Jesus was not who he thought he was going to be, he responded the same way. And he turned on Jesus and he sold him out and and just kind of walked away from him. His unmet expectations led to his unfaithfulness. Yet Jesus never promised the people of Jerusalem that he was going to free them from Roman oppression. But he did promise them an opportunity for eternal life. He promised them an opportunity to be freed up from the bondage of sin and to have the, the power to live in victory in this lifetime. And I find it amazing how we will walk away from Jesus ourselves over unmet expectations, right? We'll especially walk away over things that God never promised us. And God never promised that this life was going to be easy. As a matter of fact, he actually promised that we would face hard times, that we would face trials. He promised that we would go through suffering, right? Suffering for his name's sake. And yet oftentimes when we go through hard times or we go through suffering, we go through trials, what do we do? We blame it on God and we walk away. God never promised that we would not lose our jobs. God never promised that we wouldn't run into financial difficulties. I mean, I think of all of the people over the last decade or so who, who've lost their jobs. And some people have used that opportunity to, to grow closer to him. Right? They learn more about him. They understand more than ever his faithfulness. And yet on the other hand, I've watched a lot of people who have walked away angry. God never promised that we wouldn't have relationship issues. God never promised that that a friend wouldn't turn on us or that a spouse wouldn't cheat on us. However, many people, how many people do you know that when that happens, they they blame God for their relationship issues and they, they walk away? And this is a tough one. God never promised that we wouldn't have to deal with, with sickness and death. He did, however, tell us that because of because of sin, sickness and death would be a part of our lives. You know, many of you in this room, you've lost a maybe a spouse to an illness, or you've lost a a parent or a grandparent, and some of you have had the unbelievable pain of losing a child. But here's what I've learned. 
through every broken heart that I've experienced and every failure that I've endured, every time that someone has let me down or I've lost someone to death, I've learned to lean on the promises that God has made. God has promised us that he would never leave us, that he would never forsake us. God's promised us that in the midst of our most difficult moments, as painful as they may be, that he will walk very intimately with us. And that at times he'll carry us even when we don't feel like he is there. Now there's another moment on Thursday. We see Judas betraying Jesus. But there's another moment when we see the disciples' unfaithfulness. Peter, James, and John failed to watch and to pray for Jesus in the garden. Look at verse 36 of Matthew 26. It says this. At that time, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he told them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is consumed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then Jesus returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Were you not able to keep watch with me for for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Jesus has now left the upper room and he's now praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's the night before his crucifixion. And I want you to imagine with me for a moment, if you could, just the the emotions of deep sorrow, the emotions of deep pain that Jesus is experiencing at this moment. Remember, he is God, but he's also fully human. The Bible actually tells us in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, that Jesus is so stressed out at this moment, he is so full of sorrow that he's actually sweating drops of blood. And so Jesus asks his disciples to come with him into the garden, and then he grabs three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and, and John. And he asks them if they would just kind of slip off into the corner of the garden so that they might, they might watch and pray for him. When you go through difficult times, what you want in a moment like this is your, is your closest friends near you, don't you? When you know that maybe someone is going to die, or you're in an illness, or you've just experienced something tragic, what you want is you want your, your closest friends standing right next to you. However, when Jesus needed these guys the most, what happened? They fell asleep. They didn't fall asleep just one time. They fell asleep three times. Some of you in this room, you've had a, a friend let you down. Or imagine knowing that you're going to die a painful, excruciating death in less than, than 12 hours, and you ask your three closest friends, would you stay with me? Would you comfort me? Would you pray with me? Would you stand next to me? Would you watch for me? Would you lift my spirit? I mean, you're, you're struggling, and they fail on you. They fall asleep three times. I mean, this has to be disappointing to Jesus. However, I, I want you to notice the instructions he gave these men. He says, guys, listen, pray that you don't fall into temptation. Temptation to do what? Temptation to deny him, temptation to to desert him, to to distrust him, to disbelieve him, to become unfaithful. I mean, these words, they end up becoming prophetic, don't they? Because finally we see Peter denying Jesus, verse 69. Meanwhile, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him. You also... We're with Jesus the Galilean, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't, do not know what you are talking about. When Peter had gone out to the gateway 
Another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing nearby came up to Peter. Surely you are one of them, they said, for your accent gives you away. At that he began to curse and and swear to them, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows. You will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Just as Jesus had predicted, while they were eating dinner together in the upper room, Peter denies Jesus. The first time a servant girl walks up to him and she says, you are one of his disciples. Peter shrugs her off by saying, look, I I don't know what you're talking about. Second time we see another servant girl walking up to him. Actually, Peter denies him by making an oath this time. Kind of like saying, look, I swear on my mother's grave, I have no idea what you're talking about. The third time a group comes up to him and says, look, you're one of them. I mean, your accent actually gives you away. Emphatically, Peter denies. He says, you know, let God, let, let God strike me dead if I know this man. He makes an oath. Listen, I want you to understand something significant about this situation. When Jesus told Peter he was going to deny him three times, Peter emphatically looked at Jesus and said, listen, Jesus, I would rather die than do that. Peter says, as a matter of fact, you know what? I will die alongside of you, Jesus, before I will ever deny you. Yet after Jesus was arrested, here's Peter openly denying that he ever knew Jesus. Not just once, but three times. The rest of his disciples, we find out in verse 56, they, just, they ran away. They abandoned him altogether. They, they fled the scene. Peter and the disciples, look, they represent those people who are faithful to Jesus as long as the circumstances are right. However, you take these people, you throw them into an uncomfortable situation, you throw them into a trial, you throw them into a a moment of suffering, put some of the wrong people in their lives, and what happens? They bail. Many of you know I was a youth pastor before we planted this church, and one of the things that I loved about student ministry were things like retreats, right, camp, or, or even events like the Alive Music Festival, because some of the biggest life change moments that I've ever experienced with students happened at these places, However, one of the saddest, biggest heartbreaks was watching these commitments fade away as those students got back into school. They got around the wrong group of friends, right? I mean, you could tell someone's commitment to God when it was tested by a little persecution, even just a little bit of peer pressure. And the disciples were the very same way. Three years, they got to walk with Jesus very intimately. They walked side by side with him. However, as soon as the the heat was turned off on them a little bit, as soon as they got into a little bit of trial, some temptation came upon them, what do we see? We see them bailing. Peter actually denied even knowing him. I mean, it's easy to be faithful to God, right? When life is easy and comfortable and when things are going good, but when our faith is put to the test and we go through moments of suffering, that's when our love for God and our commitment to him is truly made known. I want you to think for just a moment about how you might have responded to this. I mean, if you were Jesus, think of how you may have responded to this unfaithfulness. Think about how you might have responded to knowing that that one of your closest friends just sold you out like a common slave. Think about how you may have felt to, to have your closest friends when you needed them the very most. In the face of death, they actually fell asleep on you. Think about how you might have responded to one of your closest friends actually denying that he ever knew you and the rest of your friends actually just running out of town and abandoning you when you needed them the most. 
I'll tell you what, if I was counseling Jesus, if he were sitting in my office, I would look at Jesus and I would say, Jesus, you know what? You need a new group of friends because I don't think these guys were ever truly your friends at all. And if Jesus was my son, right, if I had God's power, listen, I would, I'd zap those 12 guys. Is there a father in here who wouldn't do the same for their children, right? I mean, if Jesus was my son and I'm watching all of this, look, I'm throwing down just some lightning bolts, like, like 12 of them. But I want you to listen to how Jesus responded. Listen to how he responded to those who failed him. John chapter 13, the Bible tells us on the very night before all of this had taken place, you know, Jesus was sitting around the table with these men eating the Passover meal. And at some point during the meal, Jesus actually gets up from the table. He grabs a, a water basin and a towel and he begins to wash their feet. Now, do you know what was going on with these guys? I mean, the conversation they were having at the very moment that all of this was taking place. These guys were actually arguing amongst themselves which of them was going to be the greatest, right? Which one is currently the greatest? Which one was going to sit on Jesus' right side and which one was going to sit on his left side? Which one was going to be the greatest disciple of all? And I mean, you look at this and you go, seriously? I mean, at this very moment, Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that Peter, James, and John are going to fail him. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. The rest are going to bail. I mean, these guys are a bunch of morons. Still, he gets up, takes a towel, wraps it around his waist, picks up a water basin. He gets down on the ground in a servant's position. The position of the lowliest servant in the house, the foot washer. And he begins to wash their feet, every single one of them. And then he prays for them. I mean, listen to the words Jesus prayed in the garden. He said, Lord, if there's another way to rescue these friends of mine, even though they are unfaithful, even though they are untrustworthy and they fail time and time again, I'm asking you, show me another way. But then he says, not my will, but your will, Lord. Jesus is saying, look, if there is any other way to pay for the sins of these imperfect, unfaithful people apart from death on the cross, can we do this? He says, but Father, if this is the only way it can be done, Jesus says, I'm in. He says, I'm going to be faithful to the people you sent me here to save, even though they've been unfaithful to me. Lord, if this is the way it has to be done, he says, I'm willing to lay down my life to save them if that's what you're asking me to do. So what does Jesus' response teach us about the faithfulness of God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. In other words, by his very nature, one of God's attributes is just faithfulness. Right? Even when we are not committed, even when we are uncommitted to him, as a believer, he is committed to us. The second thing it shows us is that God keeps pursuing us even when we're, we're running in the opposite direction. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant of loving devotion for a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Now I want you to think for a moment who those words were spoken to. Those words were spoken to the Israelites. If you've ever read the Old Testament, right, how many times did the Israelites turn their back on God in moments of difficulty? How many times did they complain and whine and cry out to God and say, God, why have you turned your back upon us? I mean, how many evil kings led the children of Judah away from God, yet God says, I remain faithful to you through a thousand generations? 
The third thing we learn about God's faithfulness in this story is that God would rather die for us than deny us. Don't miss that. I mean, when you think about what Jesus is going through and what he's done here, I mean, this is amazing love. This is unmerited grace. This is mercy that goes beyond our comprehension. And so here's the question that we have to ask ourselves as those who have said that we're followers of Jesus Christ. How should we respond? What should our response be to God's faithfulness? Well, first of all is this, is we should never let his faithfulness to us be an excuse to sin. I've heard people say before, look, it's not a big deal if they sin because they've already been forgiven. Right? It's really not a big deal because sin is what Jesus died for. Listen, if you are truly a child of God and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not going to have a desire to sin more. You're going to have the desire to sin less. See, when you realize that the cross of Jesus was all about putting sin to death, hopefully you will never, ever, ever use the cross as an excuse to allow you to keep on sinning. The Bible poses a question to us in Romans chapter six. It says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul says, certainly not. He says, do we keep on sinning that grace will abound? I mean, we get more and more grace and the answer we find here is absolutely not. When we knowingly, deliberately continue to live in sin, we actually trample on God's grace. As followers of Jesus Christ, look, we're called to hate sin. We're called to hate the effects of sin. We're called to to hate the consequences of sin. And may we never, ever, ever use God's grace and his faithfulness as a reason for us to keep pursuing the very thing that Jesus died to save us from. Here's a promise that God made to us. In this world, when we're tempted to sin, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, it says, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. Second response is this, is that we should never let doubt or fear cause us to abandon him. You know, some of you in this room, you're at a crossroad right now. You're at a relationship issue. A friend has abandoned you. Maybe a spouse has abandoned you or cheated on you or walked away from you, whatever. Maybe you're in a a job situation, a financial situation. You're looking at God and you're going, God, where in the world are you right now? Maybe you're starting a new endeavor and it's not taking off like you had hoped. You know, many of you in this room, whatever it is you're going through and you're you're just looking and you're going, you know, you've had those moments where doubt and fear have, have crept into your heart and you're asking the question, where is God? I want to tell you this morning, I mean, fear and doubt, they cause us to ask these questions, don't they? God, where are you? God, do you, do you actually care right now what I'm going through? I mean, God, you see all this, right? It actually causes us to ask, Lord, are you even there? God, do you even exist? I mean, there's no way that you would allow this to happen to me. I mean, I claim to be your follower. And I believe Romans 8.1 says it best. If God is for us, who can be against us? And my encouragement to you is this. Just hang in there. Right? Hang in there because God is faithful even when you can't see him. And then the last thing that I want to share with you this morning is that regardless of what life hands us, we should remain faithful to him. Right, regardless of what life hands us, we need to dig in and remain faithful to him. I read a story by the, uh, a guy by the name of Jim Simbula, who's the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. He's the author of some wonderful books, and Jim and his wife Carol actually took over leadership of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in 1971. It was a, a church that was kind of failing and, and falling apart. I mean, a church had dwindled down to about 30 people. 
I mean, the thing was just a mess. The building was caving in. For many years, Jim's wife was the director of the the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. When they got into taking over the church, they realized that all these people that were coming from prison, that were coming to their church, the drug dealers and the the prostitutes and the pimps, that all these people, a lot of them were great musicians and they, 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 they could really sing. And so she started pulling them all together and she created this choir. And over the, the last however many years it's been, this choir has actually won numerous Grammys. But what's so amazing about all of this is that Carol can't even read music or, or even play an instrument. But back in the early 90s, the Simula's oldest daughter, Chrissy, walked away from God. She'd literally disappeared from their contact and from their sight for, for two and a half years. No connection to her. One night they were having a prayer meeting on a Tuesday evening, and Jim Simula describes it as a, a cold Friday e- or a February evening. And one of the ushers walked up to him in the middle of the prayer meeting, and they handed him a note. It was a note that said, look, we need to stop right now, and we need to pray for your daughter. Jim says he hesitated for a moment because he didn't want to make the prayer meeting all about him and about his needs and his problems. But then he felt prompted to, to get up and share with the congregation what was happening. And he says, at that moment... His assistant pastor had to to grab the microphone from him because Jim said he didn't have any more tears in his tear ducts. He said they were dry. And he began to pray. Jim Simbula says the sounds of the people praying for his daughter that night could only be described as the painful sounds of a woman in labor. That moment, Jim felt the Lord come over him with a new sense of determination as if to say, your daughter is coming back. Your daughter is coming back. So he went home that night and he told his wife, Carol, what had happened. And he said to her, he said to his wife, he said, Carol, it's over. And she asked him, she said, well, what's over? And Jim told her about the prayer meeting. And he said, Carol, if there is a God in heaven, this whole ordeal with Chrissy is over. 32 hours later, Jim was standing in his bathroom in the morning shaving, getting ready for his work that day. And he heard the doorbell ring. And all of a sudden, Carol came to the bathroom door and she said to him, Chrissy is at the door. He was startled. She said, Jim, she's asking for you. Jim says he wiped his face off and he ran down the steps. At the bottom of the steps, there was his daughter, Chrissy. And she fell into his arms and she said, Daddy, she said, I've sinned against you. She said, I've sinned against mom. I've sinned against our family. And I've sinned against God. She said, would you please forgive me? Would you let me come home? It was out of that experience that Carol Simula wrote a song called He is Faithful. And I wanted to read the lyrics of that song to you this morning. In this song, she writes these lyrics. She says, in my own suffering, through every pain, every tear, there's a God who's been faithful to me. When my strength was all gone, when my heart had no song, Still in love, he's proved faithful to me. Every word he's promised is true. What I've thought was impossible, I've seen my God do. He's been faithful, faithful to me. Looking back, his love and mercy I see. Though in my heart I've questioned and I've failed to believe, he's been faithful, faithful to me. When my heart looked away, the many times I could not pray, still my God was faithful to me. The days are spent so selfishly, reaching out for what pleased me. Even then, my God was faithful to me. Every time I come back to him, he is waiting for with open arms. And once again, I see 
He's been faithful, faithful to me. You know, I've had so many moments in my own life where I've doubted God. I've had moments where I've doubted His faithfulness. I've had moments where I've doubted His goodness. I've had, you know, moments, if I'm honest with you, where I've questioned, God, are you still there? I mean, I know He exists. I know He loves me. I know the right things to say, but I've just had moments of saying, God, are you, are you still here? God, is your hand still on us? God, are you still moving? God, are you in our midst? And through, through it all, as I look back at everything that I've been through in my life and in ministry, I can see that God is faithful. We pray with me. Father, we just come before you.